Please join with me in prayer. Lord our God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Our gospel passage this morning comes from Matthew and comes from the end of Jesus' life. Two chapters earlier, in Matthew 21, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a triumphant king, welcomed by an excited crowd as the anointed one, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has overturned the money changers' tables in the temple and has used the temple as a base of operations for healing the blind and the lame. The religious authorities, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, are scandalized and are pressing for answers. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority, they demand. And over the next two chapters, Jesus proceeds to answer these these questions, these teachers, through parables. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the wicked tenants, the parable of the wedding banquet, all of these parables warn the religious authorities, and not very subtly, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit of the kingdom. This back and forth with the religious teachers continues, with the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus with a question about the lawfulness of paying taxes to the emperor and the Sadducees seeking to embarrass Jesus with questions about marriage and the resurrection and culminates in chapter 23 with Jesus bringing the rhetorical hammer down on the scribes and the Pharisees and in chapter 24 with an apocalyptic vision of Jerusalem's destruction and the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. Blind guides, whitewashed sepulchers, hypocrites, snakes, brood of vipers. Jesus' language rarely gets this colorful as he denounces Israel's religious teachers for their supposed focus on external piety while neglecting the justice, mercy, and faith which should form the basis of the law. The coming judgment will be upon their heads. Jesus' invective against the scribes and the Pharisees has a flip side, an admonition to to his disciples and to the gathered crowd to live humbly in the face of God's imminent wrath. As we listen to the gospel, do we dare place ourselves with the disciples? Or do we instead find ourselves unwittingly alongside the scribes and the Pharisees with Jesus' condemnation striking us to the very core? The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, Verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to help them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries long and their, fri- their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats at the synagogues and to be greeted with respect at the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, 
For you have one teacher, and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, and all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. The presentation of the scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites in our gospel passage this morning has been wildly influential throughout Christian history, shaping not only Christian understandings of the Judaism of Jesus' day, but of contemporary Judaism as well. And that's one element that makes our lectionary text this morning difficult to preach from, namely the way that this passage and others have been used throughout Christian history to justify anti-Semitism. The scribes and Pharisees of this passage become stand-ins for the supposed hypocritical legalism of Judaism as a whole. Jesus' denunciation of those who make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long becomes distorted over time into a disdain for all embodied Jewish devotion. So that instead of being able to see the act of Jewish men binding the Torah to their arms and their foreheads as an act of passionate love for the Lord and for the law, all that many Christians have been able to see is showy, pride-filled, hollow ritual. And if the anti-Jewish legacy of Scripture's portrayal of the Pharisees is problematic, our passage from 1 Thessalonians compounds the problem exponentially. Paul contrasts the faithful church in Thessalonica, which leads a life worthy of God, with the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and his prophets, the, G- the Jews who displease God and oppose everyone, the Jews who have been filled up with the measure of their sins and who have been overtaken by God's wrath. Now, to be transparent, the editors of the lectionary tried to shield us from this problem by having the reading from 1 Thessalonians go only through verse 13, stopping before the part about the Jews killing Jesus. And normally when I preach, I try to follow the lectionary closely, but in this instance, it seemed like the lectionary committee's attempt to protect us from what the biblical scholar Phyllis Triple has called the Bible's texts of terror didn't serve us well. Yes, there's the danger that by reading these passages from the pulpit, we perpetuate anti-Jewish attitudes. But I think that reading such texts in their completeness has its strengths, so long as we are willing to grapple with where we locate ourselves in these texts. Are we smugly content to identify ourselves with the faithful church in Thessalonica? and with the crowds gathered to hear Jesus after his triumphal entry, pointing our fingers in judgment of those hypocritical scribes and Pharisees, shaking our heads at how their words don't match their actions? Or will, we, or will we be jolted into the recognition, in the words of a title of a book by Christian Peacemaker Team's Kathy Kern, that we are the Pharisees? The crowds gathered around Jesus to hear his denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees, the crowds that have just welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as a triumphant king, will very soon turn on him and call for his death. The crowds are thus, in the end, not distanced from
from the supposed hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. And we, as hearers of the gospel this morning, can't escape the charge of hypocrisy either. If we want to place ourselves with Jesus' disciples in this scene, and thus over against the Pharisees, we're certainly not whitewashed sepulchers, then we need to place ourselves with the disciples only days as they scatter, only days later, as they scatter in fear upon Jesus' arrest, and with Peter as he denies knowing Jesus. This question of where we locate ourselves as hearers and readers is relevant to our other scripture text this morning. Do we identify ourselves with the prophet Micah, filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, as he declares to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin? Or are we perhaps with the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing in their mouths? Do we stand with the psalmist, walking around mournfully because of the oppression of the enemy? Or are we maybe the ungodly people against whom the psalmist hopes to be vindicated? We're always tempted, of course, to identify ourselves with the prophet, virtually castigating persons immersed in sins to which we ourselves are not captive. Thank God that I am not like the tax collector. Thank God that I am not like the generals and the foot soldiers who enforce America's empire around the world, never mind that it costs me nothing and benefits me greatly not to be in the armed services. Thank God that I am not in the 1%, and thank God that space in the 99% is so roomy and comfortable, roomy enough that it can accommodate my lifestyle. Too often, I find my heart whispering more sophisticated and thus more self-deceptive, versions of these prayers. And aren't these the prayers of a hypocrite? The German theologian and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic study, Life Together, has difficult, but I think accurate, words on the relationship of the humility to which Jesus calls us as his disciples, to how we think about the sins of others. Bonhoeffer captures in provocative fashion the scandalous humility called for by Jesus, the humility of renouncing illusions of moral superiority and of instructing others. One extreme thing must be said, Bonhoeffer writes, to forgo self-conceit and to associate with the lowly means, in all soberness and without mincing the matter, to consider oneself the greatest of sinners. This arouses all the resistance of the natural human being, but also that of the self-confident Christian. It sounds like an exaggeration, an untruth. Yet even Paul said that he was the greatest of sinners. He said this specifically at the point where he was speaking of his service as an apostle. There can be no genuine acknowledgement of sin that does not lead to this extremity. If my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable, in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sin at all. My sin is of necessity the worst, the most grievous, the most reprehensible. Brotherly and sisterly love will find any number of extenuations for the sins of others. For my sin alone is there no apology. 
Therefore, my own sin is the worst. The one who would serve that person's sister or brother in the fellowship must sink all the way down to these depths of humility. How can I possibly serve other people in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard their sins as worse than my own? Would I not be putting myself above them? Could I have any hope for them? Such service would be hypocritical. These are hard words from Bonhoeffer, and I know that I feel myself rebelling against them. But they do seem to flow naturally from Jesus' call to us as his disciples to humble ourselves. It's relatively easy and natural to humble ourselves in front of persons whom we view as our superiors, be it our intellectual, our social, our physical, or our moral superiors. But humbling ourselves before persons to whom we feel morally superior, that is a hard message. I wonder if it's particularly a hard message for Mennonites to hear. Doing good is so much a part of our faith that the subtle temptation to begin thinking of ourselves as better than others is great, and maybe we don't always resist that temptation. Or perhaps I should just speak for myself. I know that sometimes I don't resist that temptation. But if all of this is right, does that mean that good deeds don't matter? If I'm to consider myself as the greatest of sinners, do my donations to MCC, my going on the crop walk, my teaching Sunday school count for nothing? And to that I would answer yes and no. Yes, they count for nothing in this sense. No matter how many of these good deeds I add up, one upon the other, at the end of the day, whether I want to face the truth squarely or not, I know that I am still a sinner in need of God's grace. And if I build my house on the sand of these good deeds, it will surely be washed away. But just because good deeds don't count for anything, in the sense of adding up on one side of the salvation ledger, that doesn't mean that they are meaningless. Instead, we should think of our actions as flowing from the unmerited love and grace we have from God in Jesus. This isn't cheap grace. Bonhoeffer, after all, not only counseled Christians to consider themselves the greatest of sinners, but also argued strenuously against what he saw as the cheap grace on offer in the German church of his day. The grace, Bonhoeffer to, the grace to which Bonhoeffer gave testimony, a grace to which even the greatest of sinners can cling, is a grace that gives birth to acts of love. The life of the Catholic worker co-founder Dorothy Day reflects the intimate interconnection between grace and the acts of love which flow from grace. Near the end of her life, Day observed that as she got older, she became, in her words, more convinced that we must only work on ourselves to grow in grace, and that all we can do about people is to love them. Day would begin every day by partaking in the Mass, the Eucharistic celebration, grounding an active life of organizing, agitating, and working alongside and within economically downtrodden communities. This love that animated her life was a non-instrumentalizing love. And by that I mean it wasn't a love tied to people's actions, 
a love tied to what they could get out of others, or for, either for herself or for themselves, or a love contingent on the changes that her love could bring about in others. Rather, the grace in which Day wanted to grow was in the gracious love that celebrates all persons as being created in God's image. This non-instrumentalizing love runs through an amazing reflection by Emily Rapp in the New York Times from two Sundays ago, entitled Notes from a Dragon Mother. In, there, in, that, in that article, Rapp is commenting on um, the notorious, somewhat notorious book by Yale Law Professor Amy Chua entitled Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which came out earlier this year. And in Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, Chua extols the virtues of demanding parenting, of standing watch over children practicing the piano and the violin and completing math tables for hours upon end, with occasional berating and threats to throw away the children's stuffed animals if these tasks are not done perfectly, all for the sake of the child one day being able to perform at Carnegie Hall and to, and to matriculate at Harvard. And while I'm not as committed or as intense as Amy Chua, I can see enough of myself in the tiger mother ideal <laughs> to be uncomfortable. Emily Rapp, in contrast, writes as the mother of Ronan, an 18-month-old boy with Tay-Sachs disease. Ronan is bit by bit regressing into a vegetative state and will almost certainly be dead before he turns three. Rapp observes that the tiger mother ideal is animated by the idea that good, careful investments in your children will pay off in the form of happy endings, rich futures. The dragon mother ideal as described by Rapp, however, embodies the love of the child for the sake of the love itself. Ronan won't prosper or succeed in the way we have come to understand this term in our culture, she explains. He will never walk or say mama, and I will never be a tiger mom. We will not launch our children into a bright and promising future, but see them into early graves. We will prepare to lose them and then impossibly to live on after that getting loss. This requires a new ferocity, a new way of thinking, a new animal. We are dragon parents, fierce and loyal and loving as hell. Our experiences have taught us how to parent for the here and now, for the sake of parenting, for the humanity implicit in the act itself, though this runs counter to traditional wisdom and advice. Parents, who particularly in this country, are expected to be superhuman, to raise children who outpace all their peers, don't want to see what we see, the long truth about their children, about themselves, that none of it is forever. But today, Ronan is alive, and his breath smells like sweet rice. Parenting, I've come to understand, is about loving my child today, now. In fact, for any parent anywhere, that's all there is. And really, I'd add, that's all there is for any of us, parent or no. Humbling ourselves means participating in the overflowing, excessive, unearned love of God in Christ from which creation emerged and by which we are reconciled to God. 
Humbling ourselves means loving all persons with whom we meet and with whom we engage, be they in our family, in our congregations, at our workplace, at the market, or at the DMV. Not for the sake of changing them or teaching them, and not as a display of our own moral rectitude, but rather, as Rapp puts it, for the humanity implicit in the act itself. Jesus is telling the crowds that being truly human means participating in this love and reflecting that love to others, and that it's through that love that the hypocritical disconnect between word and action is overcome. Sisters and brothers, may we go out into the world this week sustained by the unmerited love we have received from God, and by God's grace, may that love flow out from us to all whom we meet. Amen.